Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. In this episode, we'll be asking, how is the United Nations encouraging countries to prepare for future disasters? All governments, both central and local, they have to put disaster management at the core of their policy. And we'll imagine a scenario from the 2030s in which carbon surveillance has become widespread. If people are willing to give up some privacy for email and search, then I don't see why they wouldn't be able to do the same to save the planet. First, the future of public transport. In recent years, it's become much easier to get around cities without owning a car. Alternatives have proliferated from ride-hailing to e-scooters, and it's much easier to use trains and buses if you've got an app to tell you which one to take and when it's going to arrive. Shifting away from cars means less traffic, lower carbon emissions and more pleasant cities. But now the pandemic has changed the outlook for public transport. The future of transit really depends a lot on the decisions that governments make in the near and medium term. Stephen Higashida is a transportation expert and the director of research at Transit Center, a foundation that works to improve public transport in America. He's also the author of Better Buses, Better Cities, a book that argues that buses, rather than more futuristic options such as hyperloops or self-driving cars, are the most promising option for improving urban transport. But is that still true in the COVID-19 era? We are increasingly seeing uh, reports and evidence from cities like you know, Taipei, Seoul, Hong Kong, that transit can be safe with universal mask wearing. Um, there's also been you know, research from France and Japan that has not traced coronavirus clusters to transit. And what this seems to be adding up to is a suggestion that, you know, rigorous cleaning of transit, universal mask wearing is very important. You know, if that's the case, that really has implications for transit because it's, it's difficult to run transit systems while maintaining, you know, extreme social distancing, you know, that, that certainly reduces the capacity advantage of transit in a way that means you have to run many more buses and there's a lot of cost associated with that. I think that that is, you know, finding where the science ultimately tells us will be very important, but that at least what we've seen so far, it seems possible that we can return to more or less normal levels of transit with that mask wearing. But to go back a little, why do you think that buses are the best way to improve urban transport? Well, And I should start by saying that, you know, my book and my work at Transit Center is really grounded in the U.S. context, where unlike many other countries in the world, the bus has long been stigmatized. And when you look at urban transit systems in the U.S., they're often even planned in a transportation apartheid, where rail systems are built, they're well-funded, 
well-supported for wealthier commuters, the bus is seen as a second-class service. And we just know that that is not how you build effective public transportation, that where you see transit succeed from London to Tokyo to cities in South America, there's integration between uh, frequent high-capacity rail and then frequent convenient bus service meeting that system and working as an integrated system. That's really a lesson that you know, we haven't learned in a lot of U.S. cities. So it's the most important thing that we have to fix in U.S. cities, I believe. Okay, so I appreciate there's a sort of deeper problem there. But just tactically, what are the most important changes that cities can make to encourage the use of buses? So I mentioned frequency, and that's incredibly important. There's also simply carving out space on the street for buses. You know, if you don't do that, you're really relegating buses, which might be carrying 40 or 60 people. Why should they be given the same priority as one or two people in a car? You have to provide space for transit that is commensurate with the number of people that it is moving. What about things like payments? How can that be a, a factor that can encourage bus use? Well, in addition to you know travel time and frequency, you, you want it to be a a dignified experience. You want it to be affordable. You want it to feel seamless and, and, and frictionless in how you interface with the system. When I'm taking the bus in another city, I often have the experience that only cash is accepted and I don't have the exact change to make the payment. And that is also the everyday experience for a lot of transit riders. And then sometimes as a result of that, people get harassed or arrested for fare evasion when really the system is very hard to pay for in the first place. And so it's really important to address that, which can involve things like phone apps, but it can also involve really doing work to build out a great retail network, you know, a great network of where people can buy fares to just make it as easy as possible. How worried are you that the pandemic will actually reverse this shift that we've seen you know, more in some parts of the world than others, but there has been a bit of a shift away from private cars, hasn't there? We know from the transportation research that whenever a person, whenever a family has a major life change, that that is a moment where they can reset their transportation habits. And then those habits can be quite difficult to change afterwards. And the coronavirus is international life change for everyone. So it's this huge potential moment of resetting transportation habits. And so really, so much of it comes down to what our local, what our state, what our national decision makers do, whether transit, for example, is nimble enough to respond to changes in demand. We have to have transit that remains convenient for the essential workers who have been on the front lines this entire time. And so I hesitate to predict or talk about how worried I am because it's really in our hands, in decision makers' hands. And there are paths we can take where I think transit will remain very central to cities. And there are other paths where it might take years and years to get back to where we are today. That was certainly the case in the US after the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. 
that really wreaked havoc on transit agency budgets. And it took years for many to get back to providing levels of service that they had before the recession. Okay, so in some senses, then, this is this is an opportunity to change the way people travel. Do you see parts of the world that are taking advantage of that opportunity? I mean, the, the examples that I think are most widespread are bike lanes. So lots of cities like Paris and Barcelona have introduced bike lanes during the crisis, which they say they're now going to make permanent. But I mean, is there a sort of holistic approach being taken to this by any city that you would commend? I see it less as an opportunity and more of the sense that we are in an emergency And if nothing is done, we may be in a scenario where there's a large increase in car traffic. Transit riders are relegated to being stuck in traffic. We have more air pollution and more traffic crashes in our neighborhoods. And so it's important to try and prevent the worst of that through happening through access for transit and through active transportation, you know, including safe bike paths and bike lanes, it's important to get ahead of that. And so I think there is quite a bit of urgency that has to be taken in order to honor essential workers and keep city transportation working for everyone. Okay, and finally, some people are in the privileged position of being able to work from home. So potentially that could reduce the amount of commuting. How big a piece of the overall puzzle is that? do you think? So commuting tends to be about a fourth to a third of transit use. And in many ways, it is more cost effective to run a transit system that provides even service throughout the day. You know, it's more cost effective to do that than it is to have very pronounced peaks. So if we're able to provide transit that, you know, rather than being so concentrated in these peak hours, we provide great service throughout the day. That's the kind of service that supports people living their whole lives on transit and using it to do things like go to grocery stores. So it is a time, I think, possibly for a a rethink. And it's a time to be as responsive as possible to where demand has remained. In many cities, we've seen really steep declines in ridership on long-distance commuter trains that are historically, in the U.S., sort of the the province of white-collar commuters, while bus service has been relatively strong in relation to that. And we can rethink who the transit system is for and what kind of service is provided. When I think about something like the overground in London, which is far more affordable than the sort of equivalent suburban trains in New York or Boston, or Chicago, it feels like we're really out of step in those U.S. cities, and we can make those trains more affordable and more oriented towards essential workers. Okay, great. Stephen Higashide, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Next, during a global pandemic, It might seem premature to worry about the next disaster, but a part of the United Nations is doing just that, in the hope that next time around, countries will be better prepared for the unexpected. The person in charge of this effort to evaluate future risks and help governments prepare for them is Mami Mitsutori, the United Nations Assistant Secretary-General and Special Representative of the Secretary-General for the Office of Disaster Risk Reduction. 
So given that you need different kinds of resources to respond to different kinds of disasters, how can governments prepare in a more general and flexible way? So it's true, Tom, isn't it, that uh, there are so many disasters that are hitting us. There are natural disasters, which now 90% of them in the past 20 years are related to climate emergency. But we also have human-made disasters. So how do you prevent, mitigate the risk from these disasters? The word is uh, strengthen the governance of risk management. And by what I mean is that all governments, both central and local, they have to put disaster management at the core of their policy, which means that a disaster management agency has to be placed, ideally, at very top level of the political hierarchy, presidential office or prime minister's office, and every country, city has to have a strategy for disaster risk reduction. So I take your point that it's very important that you encapsulate all of this in law. And we've seen this again with the COVID-19 response that in the past, some governments in some countries have built up ventilator stockpiles and others have allowed them to go down again and they've been subject to cuts and uh, and so on. Who's doing this well? Is there a country or a region that, that's doing it in a way that the rest of the world could learn from? There are several, but I would uh, offer the example of South Korea. So in 2015, uh, South Korea experienced MERS outbreak, and they, South Korea was one of the very few countries which experienced mortality from it. So this prompted uh, South Korea to make major changes in its public health emergency response framework. And what they did was that they clarified the roles of the national government, the local government, public health and industry sector in the event of an, another outbreak which is happening right now. This clarification is very important because it also clarifies the chain of command and facilitates to scale up the pr- production of test kits and personal protective equipment. And very importantly, December of last year, they conducted a tabletop exercise on emergency response to a fictional outbreak. This really helped because you know, it was only a matter of a few months later. South Korea's response was uh, based on what they call a TRUSD, trust strategy, which is transparency, robust screening and quarantine, unique but universally applic- applicable testing, strict control and treatment. So this, I would say, is a very, very good, uh, important best practice. Okay, now many governments will be in the wake of the pandemic, improving the way that they respond to future pandemics. I'm sure there'll be a lot of investment in that area. But that's sort of fighting the last war, isn't it? So what threats do you think we should be paying more attention to? The risk that is very, very um, high in terms of the very near future is, of course, the risk that comes from climate emergency. In the past 20 years, 90% of all natural hazards are related to climate emergencies. These are hurricanes, cyclones, floods, drought. But if you ask me what is the biggest risk driver, I would say it's bad governance. Because what I mean is that if we do not face these challenges fairly and squarely of these climate emergency risks, and if we do not, you know, um, invest in resilience, and if we say, like, okay, uh, climate emergency is a hoax, this is not a pandemic, that is the biggest risk driver. 
And so I would say the combination of climate emergency with bad governance, these are the threats that are making our planet more and more vulnerable. How optimistic are you then that one of the results of this pandemic will be an improvement in governance and an improvement in resilience. Do you think that's really going to happen? I'm optimistic in the sense that definitely awareness for prevention saves lives is high. And it's not only high in the mind of the politicians and policymakers, it's also high in the mind of everybody. Because what has happened is that because of this global disaster, this global pandemic, which started as a public health disaster, but quickly turned into a socioeconomic disaster, what has happened is that every one of us, you and me, and people on the street, know that we need to prevent better. So awareness is there. That is really reassuring, because we have been struggling uh, during the past 20 years since we started this organization to really get that message across. Prevention is not in the nature of us. But the test is, will this translate into uh, real policy changes? So um, we really have to uh, see whether the government will walk the talk. But I think it's up to us to really demand that the government do invest in prevention. One of the pieces of advice you gave there for governments was to to have a plan that looks at the risks that are most likely for that particular city or region. Isn't there a danger, though, that you can still overlook you know, the unexpected? Things can just come out of nowhere, can't they? So how can you be sure that you're preparing for the right risks? That's a very good question, because before we uh, were having this um, climate emergency so rampant, before um, urbanization was taking place at such a rapid place, it was pretty much okay to look at your historical um, disaster experience and say, okay, I will make sure that when the next tsunami comes, we will be prepared for it. However, because of climate emergency, the risks are becoming more frequent and intense, and it's not good enough to just look at your historical loss data. That's why you need to look into the future as well. And here, what is really important and what is not enough right now is having good data. We still don't have enough data to make sure where are the vulnerabilities of our societies, what are the real uh, risks in the future. And many developing countries do not have the financial nor human resources to really collect or analyze or apply these data. So really, the democratization of sourcing and applying data, uh, more open uh, source data, which can be provided by developed countries to developing countries, but also from the private sector, unless um, this kind of data is really made democratically available, we really can't be able to prevent and prepare well. Mami Mitsutori, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, in the July 4th edition of The Economist, we will be publishing our annual scenarios supplement, The World If. This year, it has a theme. All the scenarios are about climate change, and they each imagine a different way in which things could play out in the decades to come. One of these scenarios is set in the year 2030, and it describes a world in which everyone's carbon footprint is precisely monitored and taxed using a giant surveillance system as part of the effort to reduce global carbon emissions. The scenario starts in the present day with a smartphone app. 
this app promises to calculate your carbon footprint automatically based on the transactions that it sees you making through your credit card or your bank card. Hal Hodson is The Economist's Asia technology correspondent and the author of this scenario. And it turns out the app he's talking about really exists. It's called My Carbon Action. And this is different from other carbon footprint calculators purely because it's using some kind of algorithm to make an estimate of how much carbon you are sort of consuming or that your consumption is creating by looking at transactions rather than, say, punching in, you know, I took a flight to Malaga. How many tons of carbon is that? But when you're thinking about the complexity of trying to calculate what my transactions mean in terms of carbon, that's very, very difficult and complicated and weird. And so that got me thinking of, well, if you could actually make this work, if if My Carbon Action, if Enfus's app works in any real way, then that has the potential to lead us down this weird path that is, is in the scenario. Okay, so let's go down that weird path. So you imagine a world where some people, and some people are, of course, already doing this, are trying to track their carbon footprints using apps, and that that system gradually becomes more sophisticated and more accurate. So what are the steps? Um, and this is all totally voluntary, of course, but what are the steps that uh, that might take us in that direction? So at first, it's led and driven by the same things that's driving the people who are monitoring their emissions now, which is a sort of sense of wanting to do right by, for this cause that they think is important in the world. And that starts to kind of interplay with essentially, I guess, showing off or um, virtue signaling it to use a sort of contemporary phrase or the kind of influencer culture as well i mean this is this is an influencer sort of thing isn't it yeah absolutely and you know there's almost a sense that if you have a a big following it is incumbent upon you to do things about these important issues of the day but the real thing that this was driven by is the the feedback loop of more users create more data which refines the product which makes the product better which pulls in more users the scenario kind of describes that same feedback loop of data improvement and product improvement, but for the automated calculation of carbon emissions based on other streams of data that are not inherently about sort of energy consumption. Once you've got these sort of, you know, accurate to some degree numbers for your emissions, uh, that it would be a fairly straightforward thing for Instagram or TikTok or whatever the social network of the day is in 2024 or what have you, uh, to allow you to kind of plug that into your social network. Obviously, we're having a bit of fun with these scenarios. So I like the way that we imagine that Facebook firstly renames itself Instagram because that becomes its main app by the time we're talking about, which is by now the mid 2020s. And secondly, that it acquires the original Finnish app that we've been talking about and rolls it into Instagram and launches this as a new feature on Thanksgiving 2024 with Selena Gomez being the first user to roll it out. So you can then imagine other celebrities falling in line and this becoming more widespread. Yes. And I think as that happens, I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine that the sort of social pressure around these things becomes pretty intense. And that when that combines with the kinds of catastrophic events that science expects to become more commonplace as global warming proceeds, that that creates quite a potent mix for political action. And the second half of the scenario kind of takes things away from the voluntary and the kind of, you know, step by step of voluntary engagement and development of these services and into the legislative and government mandated tracking of, uh, of emissions. 
So the way your scenario plays out is that basically governments say we're going to start taxing or limiting how much carbon people can emit and, and setting taxes accordingly. And we're going to use this existing infrastructure that's already there to do that. And you can imagine that if governments really did this, then this would potentially pit environmentalists against privacy activists, because this would be quite intrusive handing over this data. But this is sort of what's already happening, isn't it? Because we've got internet firms that are, in effect, surveilling us in order to give us free services. So, yeah, the privacy activists essentially get overruled by the environmental people who say that, you know, this is this is a very limited domain of snooping and we're doing this for the most important cause that you could imagine. And we've lived with and tolerated personal data collection for things as basic as having a free email account. So really, there's not much ground to sort of protect here. And a series of sort of the, these inclement weather crises push this into legislation and essentially the accounting systems that the that are being used at places like Amazon and that Amazon offers through its APIs that data starts to have to be sort of collected centrally by a sort of transformed IRS that now includes the job of accounting for how much carbon is being emitted essentially per person and again once this starts it begins with at sort of the corporate level and the bulk level, but very quickly drills down to the much more personal level and sort of person by person carbon accounting. So obviously the externality in the case of our scenario is um, carbon emissions. And so once you've got a system where the government can uh, see what everyone's personal carbon footprint is and then tax you if you emit too much carbon or give you a personal allowance, there's various ways of doing this. That gives governments quite an important policy tool there, doesn't it? Because that would allow governments to basically ratchet up carbon taxes or ratchet down personal allowances in order to meet commitments, as many countries have made, to reach, say, net zero emissions by 2050. Exactly. And one of the sort of obvious things that would happen in this scenario is that people would try and get around it, especially powerful people who wanted to emit a lot of carbon and not have to pay for it. As a side note, one of the interesting things about trying to account for the externality of carbon emissions rather than the externality of tax evasion is that you can see carbon emissions from space, at least hypothetically, at least in theory. It's quite tricky technically to actually do this, but you know, we're thinking about the future. So I envision that the US government launches a fleet of small sats that are tuned to look for CO2 emissions at uh, Earth level. And they build a system which correlates those emissions with the accounting system. And so if you are, you know, if, if they find a, a great big factory in, you know, New Mexico that's spewing out carbon and that carbon sort of not on the book somewhere, then they're going to go and investigate that, that carbon source and make sure that it's all uh, all accounted for and, uh, and taxed. And so in a way, these sort of carbon taxes or carbon payments become much harder to evade than uh, taxes are. You can't just move to a jurisdiction, a domicile that is outside of uh, sort of the IRS's eye because you can see carbon from space. You can't see money from space. So in a way, your scenario ends in quite an optimistic place because this system allows governments to ratchet up the um, the carbon taxes, ratchet down the personal allowances and get on a, a track to net zero emissions by 2050. But the price is that a lot of people have to give up privacy by allowing this intrusive surveillance of every uh, transaction. Do you think that's a, a price people might be willing to pay? I think it is. And the reason that I think it is is because we already have quite a high degree of state visibility into our into our lives in order to pay normal taxes. Humans are very legible to modern states. And 
I think that this extra bit of legibility that kind of takes in qualitative information about what you're spending money on and what bits of your life are emitting carbon. And so, yeah, if people are willing to give up some privacy for email and search, then I don't see why they wouldn't be able to do the same to save the planet. Great. Thank you very much for joining us, Hal. Thanks, Tom. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. For lots more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get the best introductory offer wherever you are around the world, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.